Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Mixing it up. So if you're joining us for the first time, tonight is week two of our study of the book of Revelation, what is quite perhaps the most ominous book in all the Bible. We spent last week going over the introduction, which uh, not only just with chapter one, but really kind of covering the context because context matters. You guys don't like it when you hear something about yourself that somebody else had shared and it was completely taken out of context, do you? I know I don't like that. I want everything to be in proper context. And for a book that is as ominous as Revelation, context matters for that too because we don't want to misinterpret or misunderstand it. So we spent all of last week kind of going over the context in chapter 1, and, and we see that even though John is the writer of the book, he's on this island, this kind of you know prison island called Patmos in 90 AD. But we saw last week... When's the real time that John is writing this whole thing? It says in Revelation 1 that he was in the Spirit on... AJ. That day. That day, the Lord's Day. And we spent last week talking about how the Lord's Day, it's specifically the day when Jesus Christ comes back and physically returns on this planet. But also, that day... It also is known as those days, and whenever you look at those days or in that day, that day, all of these verses in the Bible that have to do with that, they all kind of entail not just one specific day, but a series of days that span about a thousand years. And if you guys remember, I had this chart last week where we see that this is the time frame for when John writes, it's when the rapture of the church happens, when everybody who names the name of Christ, everyone who is a genuine born-again Christian, is just suddenly miraculously taken out of here. The Bible describes it happening as a thief in the night, gone in the blink of an eye. John is supernaturally transported from 90 AD all the way here to Revelation chapter 4 when the rapture happens. And he's given a commission from God. He's told to do something very, very specific. What was it? Write everything down. Write everything down. That's a very broad way of looking at it. But you're getting somewhere, Caleb. I love it. I love it. Specifically, what was he supposed to write down? Everything he had seen, past tense, everything that is present from his standpoint of writing, and everything that should come hereafter, future tense. And so we're seeing that even though John was over here in 90 AD, he's transported supernaturally through time to the rapture of the church, and in chapter 2, where we're going to begin the night, He's doing his commission. He's fulfilling what God asked him to do by writing down everything he saw as he was transported through time of the last 2,000 years. And so that's where this is going to launch us off starting tonight into a study of church history. And man, I got to tell you, this is a daunting task for me. Uh, for starters, before we actually jump into these seven letters that John is writing to, these seven letters to seven historical churches, when we teach this class to the adults, we usually spend two weeks just on the introduction of church history because there is so much background to know and understand, so we're kind of shotgunning it here. 
That's why last week was so important to know and understand the time frame and how it is that John would have such pinpoint accuracy to know exactly what happened the last 2,000 years because he saw it as he was transported through time. But not only that, I kind of mentioned this last week, too, that just like with everything in the Bible, for those of you who've been through how to study the Bible, and I think Stephen taught on that maybe this past year, but there's a very important rule or key to unlocking the truths of the Bible, and it's the fact that all Scripture has three basic applications. There's three simple, basic ways that you can take this book and apply it. And the first one is historical. The seven letters to these seven churches that we read, they were literal churches that existed back in 90 A.D. And they're letters that when John was sent back in time to 90 A.D., he sent out and delivered to them. And devotionally speaking, practically speaking, the devotional application of Scripture is that the characteristics that we're going to look at starting tonight of these seven churches, they represent characteristics and character traits of Christians, not only all throughout the century, but even today. You're going to see some things tonight about what God had to say about this first church letter. And some of you, he's speaking directly to, because you're there. Others, hopefully it's a warning of what not to do. So you have the historical application, the devotional or practical application. How do the truths of this book apply to me today? But the cool thing about it, and this is where, man, I hope you guys, you cling to your Bibles stronger after tonight and when we're done with this whole entire church history section. Because this is no ordinary book. Not only does God have His Word applicable to historical and devotional side of things, but something called the doctrinal or the prophetic application. What we're going to see starting tonight is that these seven letters represent seven periods of time throughout the last 2,000 years. It's incredible. And it may not make sense right now, but hopefully by the end of tonight, it'll start to click a little bit as just to how that represents that. So this is huge. But something that I really wanted to, to hammer with you guys, uh, these are passages where I'm just like, man, God is so incredible with, with, as it pertains to history in general and specifically church history. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Check out verses 14 and 15. Can I get a reader for both of those loud and clear? Sam. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. <laughs> And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requires that which is past. It might sound like a little bit of a, a word puzzle there, a riddle, if you will, the way that that's worded. But if you just actually take your time and look at it again, here's what he's saying. That which hath been, now what grammatical tense is that? Past. Past. That which hath been is now. What tense is that? Present. And that which is to be, good job, hath already been. You know what he's saying? History repeats itself. God is letting us know through this passage that there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, if you flip back a page to chapter 1, he says literally those exact words. Look at verse 9. The thing that hath been 
it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. You think everything scary and alarming that's going on right now with Russia and Ukraine is something new? No, not at all. Because we've been through this two other times in recent history, modern history. If we're on the precipice of World War III, like many people think. And not only that, this kind of thing's been going on. This kind of power grab, the kind of power struggle that's going on, it's been going on since ancient history. History repeats itself. That which hath been is now. That which is to come hath already been. History just repeats itself. God's letting us know that. But not only that, check out these passages and write them down because they're not on your outline. Isaiah 42, 9. God says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Right here, God is telling us that He is going to give us history in advance. The most common example of that is, think about all the prophecies detailing Christ and His birth and Him coming to this planet. Did God in the Old Testament not give history in advance to all those people back then? He did. So is it anything to wonder about Him doing it again for what's happened the last 2,000 years? That maybe in 90 AD, God through the book of Revelation, is giving us details about what's happened in the past 2,000 years? Before they spring forth, I tell you. And here's this one. Isaiah 46.10, write this one down. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So do we find it in history books? Well, the thing with history books is that they're written by lost men who have agendas. This is the Word of God that has been proven time and time again that even though God used men to pen this book, it's almost as if it was just like that where God is using men as the instrument to write down what He wants to communicate to mankind. This has been proven. We don't have the time to go through it tonight, but if you have questions about it, man, there is a slew of evidence, both internal and external, that prove that this book is from God and not men. And so we can't go to history books because they're skewed. And something else to write down too, and this will end our introduction, and then boom, we're going to jump right into it. The definition of church history, it's really twofold. Church history is the movement of God throughout the last 2,000 years to establish His plans and purposes for the earth, the universe, and your life. Now, don't worry about getting it specifically down. Just get it generally if you need to. I mean, if you guys had to come up with a definition of church history, don't you think that would be it? It'd be God moving throughout time to establish His plan and His purpose for all of mankind? Right? Is there anything wrong with that definition? No, it's something that's very, very logical. But you know the problem with it? It is missing something. And this is what a lot of historians and a lot of your textbooks at school get wrong about church history. 
They only look at it through the lens of what they view God doing, and they leave out the very common denominator that we have an enemy. The twofold definition of church history is that as God is moving to establish His plan and purpose throughout all of mankind, Satan is moving to do three things. To counter, to counterfeit, and ultimately to confound everything that God is doing throughout time and history. This is the threefold plan of Satan to come against God, counter, to counterfeit, make it look as though it is God, make it look as though it is Christian, make it look as though it's good, and in doing that, he ultimately confounds or stops the work of God. Where do we see this most commonly happen? Where do we see it most predominantly happen in Scripture? I should have said that. Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. This is the threefold plan that Satan uses to deceive Eve and Adam. He comes against God's Word. He questions it. And as a side note, it's okay to have questions about the Bible. Questioning the Bible and the authority behind it, well... You're countering it. You're not trusting what God had said. He counters it. He counterfeits it by saying something that sounds like it could be biblical, sounds like it could be from God, but it was really his own reasoning. And then he ultimately confounds what God was doing through Adam and Eve. This has happened all throughout history. It was set up and established as a pattern in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to see how it's worked throughout the last 2,000 years. This is very, very key to understanding. And after all, do you guys not experience that? When God is working in your life with somebody at school that you're witnessing to, a friend you're trying to get to come to church, or maybe it's a, a family member, Whenever you're at work, or maybe you sign up for a ministry or a missions trip, do you not experience opposition? Do you not experience, maybe it's, oh, what are they going to say? Or, oh man, goodness, now I might not be able to go, or I might not be able to serve here or there. Do you not experience it too? This is Satan doing this threefold plan. Oh, well, maybe it's God's will that I don't go on this missions trip this year. Yeah, you know, I wasn't really feeling it anyway, so I'll just stay home this year. It happens to us too. If you're doing anything for God, expect opposition to come. That's what most historians, and specifically church historians, miss. That's what most miss in your textbook. We're going to see that starting tonight. So turn over to, uh, not Ephesus, turn over to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to see how this breaks down. Revelation chapter 2, the first letter, the first church that John is instructed to write to is the Ephesus church. Now again, a literal church in 90 AD. The characteristics we're about to read, characteristics that we can exude if we're not careful, and in some cases we should exude it, we should demonstrate it. But also, 
It represents this period of time, if you're on your outline here, point number one, Ephesus. These characteristics we're about to read in the first seven verses encapsulate a period of time from 90 A.D. to approximately 175 to 200 A.D. And we'll see that in a little bit. First things first, the first bullet point on there, we have Ephesus. What does the name mean? The name means fully purposed. Fully purposed is your first blank. A couple of quick shots about this church age before we read it. This is the era after the apostles where the church gradually fell away. You might want to underline that word gradually. No one just up and decides that I am going to walk away from Jesus today. Some do. But normally in a situation like that, if they come right out and they're that bold and brazen to say that, typically speaking, there was a slow, gradual change months to years before. It doesn't just usually happen overnight. It's a slow fade. A slow fade. They fell away from their first love. Third bullet point. Every single week we're going to look at Satan's attack method because it is, it is the same as far as what's on the board here, but it's different from period to period. This period of time, the Ephesus church period, Satan's attack method is heresy. Preaching that which is, goes contrary to what the Bible says. And here's how he did it, as we'll soon see. His method was to wear down pastors, leaders, and congregation through fighting theological battles. Understand something, guys. And this goes not just with theological battles, but even just amongst ourselves. You understand there are certain hills that just aren't worth dying on. If you have some kind of infighting going on with maybe somebody here or somebody that's a member of your own house or maybe somebody at school, we need to learn to pick and choose our battles. That's something that I'm still learning to this day. Is this really something that I need to approach this person on? Or am I able just to kind of let it go and just let God take care of it himself? Now, in certain cases, if it's doctrinal or if it's a sin issue, then yeah, maybe you need to have a conversation with somebody or maybe you need to open up a Bible and show somebody what the Word of God says. But if it's somebody that maybe irked you, or maybe it's something that, okay, maybe you have some ground. Maybe your argument holds water to have a conversation with them and tell them how you're feeling. Is it something that might actually do more hindrance to the ministry if you have that conversation versus maybe just having grace and mercy and letting it go? See, guys, in Ephesus, during the church period, as we're going to see, they just constantly get into arguments where they were debating theological issues that really would have been resolved in a matter of seconds had someone just opened up their Bible. And we'll see why they didn't in a little bit. So his plan was to wear down pastors and leaders with these theological battles. His plan was also to persuade congregations to rely too much on their pastors rather than personally contend for the faith. And his plan was ultimately to draw their hearts away from their first love, which was Jesus Christ. So understand something. You may seem like you have a noble cause, but if it distracts from the gospel and what our mission as solid really is, then it just ain't worth it. It's just Satan trying to find another way to get a wedge in between what he's doing in our midst. And we have to be on guard. We have to be careful because he's coming to counter us. 
and he's going to make it seem like it's of God. And ultimately, it's just going to stop the work and the plans and purposes of what God's already doing. So we have to have discernment. We have to pray about it. We have to seek a multitude of counselors on it. All right, let's dive into this. Can I get, I need seven readers. I want a reader for each verse. Landon, right? Yes. Okay. You go ahead and read Sam, Kent, Sammy, sorry. Uh, Kendall, Caleb. All right, I probably should have done this better. All right, Landon, verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, five, six. Who's number seven? AJ. All right. Follow along and read as we read. Go ahead, Landon, sorry. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks along the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say, which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You guys here in the back? Yeah. All right. Just check. You're good. <laughs> Say that one again, though, because that is a good. That's a key verse. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so let's break this down a little bit further. On the Everything you're going to see for all seven of these churches, God gives a commendation. Here's something you guys are doing well. And he also gives a condemnation. Here's where you kind of drop the ball a little bit. In just about every case, there's a commendation and there's a condemnation. In one church's case, there are commendations and zero condemnations. And in another church's case, there is nothing but condemnation. That's down the road. But in this particular case, we have a commendation. Here's what I commend you. You guys did this well. And here's where he could have improved a little bit more. So to start things off with a commendation, verse 2, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. You call out sin when you see it. And you tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. This was a good church on your outline. They rooted out false teachers with the words of God and proved them to be liars. Man, if you want a hard pill to swallow, read Titus later on tonight. But I love Jude 3. You know what Jude 3 says? Jude is writing and he's commending this church to earnestly contend for the faith, to be a fighter for that which is right, to be a fighter for the words and the work of God. We need to earnestly contend for the faith that God has given us. You know what that means? You know how we go about doing that? We do what they did. We need to know not only what we believe, but we need to know why we believe what we believe. That's where discipleship comes in. That's where serving, putting into practice what God has shown you and giving it away to others. 
if you're going to be a servant, you better know what this book says because you're going to get questions from time to time. You're like, I don't know the answer to that. How do I answer that? You got to go to the book. We have to earnestly contend. And not only that, understanding church history will help you to be able to do that too because you'll know your place in church history. Look at verse 3 again. He says they, they, bore, they have born, he says. Uh, that word born, it means to carry, to have a burden. And they had patience. And for my namesake, they labored and hast not fainted. Seniors, a couple months left and you're done. A couple months left of school and you are done. And you will never see 99% of the kids in your classroom ever again. I can't stress that enough make them count. Don't get so close to the finish line that you faint. Have you ever watched any of those videos of people who run track or they ran a marathon and they get so close to the end, but then they just fall on their face before the finish line. They faint. That can't be you. Not when you're this close. Finish well. Earnestly contend for the faith that God has given you. Ephesus was a great church at doing this. He commends them in that. On your outline, they knew their mission and were patient and faithful to labor in the work of the Lord. Keep in mind the primary objective of why you're at school. Yes, you're there to get good grades, but that's not the primary objective as to why you're there. God didn't place you in that school for this time and this purpose as a Christian just to get good grades and nothing more. You are a missionary there first. Good grades and whatever happens afterwards is a byproduct. Focus on the land that God's given you and what you are supposed to do in that land of reaching souls for Him. Verse 6. Carson, great job uh, pronouncing that. Look what it says again. It says, But this thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, or the Nicolaitans, it's also been pronounced too, which I also hate. Now, keep in mind, John's writing this, but who's speaking to John here? Jesus. Jesus. So if there's something in the Bible that it says that Jesus hates, do you think we should probably perk up? Yeah. Now, on your outline here, you might want to underline that word deeds. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Christ and the Ephesians do not hate Nicolaitans, people. So this is kind of neat. This is one of those words in the Bible where it's a, it's a transliteration. For example, do you guys know... Who, who here does not speak a lick of Spanish? Caleb, perfect. Mad dog. Can you tell me what is the English equivalent to the Spanish word tortilla? Tortilla. That's called a transliteration. It's the same word in one language as it is the other. It's the same thing with this one. There's no real English equivalent. So the translators of the Bible, they just kind of passed it over. But it does break down into something very, very interesting, and it gives you an insight as to what kind of people were showing up during this time in history. On your outline, the word Nico, it means victor or conqueror. Conqueror. One who conquers. But he conquers someone. And that's where the other half, Laetans... That word means of the people. 
you might want to make a note next to that. Specifically, it's not just a certain, or it is a certain type of people, it's the common people. Common, ordinary people. Everyday Joes and Jills. That's what it is. A Nicolaitan is someone who conquers the common man. This is something that Jesus says he hates. Any deed that does that. And the reason why is because of what Mark 12, 37 says. You want to write this down too. Speaking about Jesus, it says the common people heard him what? Gladly. Man, it talks, Christ is mentioning all throughout the Gospels. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person Someone who seemingly has it all to receive Christ. For a rich person to be like, you know what? I've gained the whole world. I'm good. Now, see, the book of Mark says that, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Because you can't take any of that stuff with you when you die. The only thing that really matters in this life is where are you going to spend eternity? Christ made a way for us to be with Him, not because of the wealth we amass or because of the good works we have, but only because of what Christ did by being our substitute and dying our death on the cross, something we couldn't do. We couldn't pay that debt. But man, for rich people, or for people who have need of nothing, or for someone who's so full and rich in their pride and their arrogance, and they're just so determined with their good works to want to get to heaven, man, the Bible says for them it's really, really hard. People who receive Him, common ordinary people. Common ordinary people who realize, man, you know what? I am flawed. I am a sinner who is in desperate need of a Savior. Those are the people who hear Christ, who hear the words of this book, and they don't scoff at it. They don't receive it, as we looked at last week, as the words of men, but as it is in truth, the words of God. You look at this book as that, and God will change your life. This room is full of people who have that testimony and who could stand up here and attest to that. Nicolaitans seek to conquer them and rule over them. That's why during this time, and we're going to look at a few of these guys in just a little bit, during this time in history, about 100 to 200 AD, we see this class of Bible scholars and Bible professionals show up who seek to conquer the common man and to lord over them rather than lead them. Who decide to be an executive or an executor over them rather than to be an example to them. Who decide to fleece the flock when they were called to feed the flock. That's what a pastor should do. That's what a leader should do. That's what a discipler should do. Feed. Lead. Be an example. And this whole thing about being a common person not thinking yourself more highly than what you ought to. I think Paul talks about that in Corinthians. But do you guys understand? In your class, if you go to a school or you're at work with people who, man, you're like, man, they went to college for how long and they know so much more than me. 
and I just have my Bible, man. I, whenever I try to witness to them, I just feel like a dummy. I feel like I can't answer their questions. I don't know how to, to come at them because they're just so smart. Well, take heart in these verses here. Psalm 119, 99 to 100. I have more understanding than all my who? Yes, even the ones who went to college for seven years. Called doctors. For thy testimonies, which is another word for the word of God, are my meditation. When you seek to let this book into your mind and into your heart, and you choose to do what it says, you have more wisdom than your teachers, because as smart as they may be, at least so far in their life, if they're not saved, they've not been smart enough to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. And not only that, it goes on. Verse 100, I understand more than the ancients. Who are some of the smartest people in history that you know? Socrates. 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 <laughs> 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 a movie. I know it's Socrates. And Andy, Plato is not the thing that you've mold stuff with, okay? <laughs> Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these great men. We'll talk about them in a second. No. Check it out, guys. According to the Bible, if you're in here and you are smart enough to realize, I am a sinner and I need Jesus Christ, His death and burial and resurrection was payment for my sin, I need Him. And you called out to Him and asked Him to save you, do you realize you're smarter than all of those ancients who died thinking they were smarter than God Himself? That's right. Don't be intimidated by any man or woman behind a pulpit or behind a lectern in your schools. If you have this book and you hold fast to it and you believe it as it is the Word of God, you are the one that's in control, not them. Go into school with that mindset tomorrow. Change the way that you look at things. Man. So that's a commendation. They had this. They hated the deeds of these conquerors of the people. But man, things were going so well. And isn't that just like us? Things seem to be going so well in our lives. Then opposition hits. And what do we do? For them, to a certain extent, they gave in the condemnation. Look at verse 4 again. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. On the outline here, they left their first love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to write down John 1.1 1, 1 in the space you have there, does anybody tell me what that word says, or what that verse says? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't separate the Word of God. From Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the living word. The Bible is the written word. It's, the, it's Jesus Christ in print form. How do you leave Jesus Christ? Well, how you treat this book is how you treat Jesus on a daily basis. They left him. How did they do that practically speaking? Look at the outline again. They started using words and phrases not found in the scriptures. And they started focusing more on the concepts of God rather than the words of God. And the problem with this is that God in the Bible makes it very, very clear that every word matters. 
you want to write down Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, that's where you get that verse. Every word of God is pure. It's not just the concepts of the Bible. It's not just the concepts and the basic tenets of Christianity. God cares about every particular word in the Bible. And we start tampering with that and start looking more at the, well, what's the, what's the main concept? If we at least look at the concept, then it's okay, right? problem with that is that God never gave us any authority whatsoever to monkey around with His words, to tamper with it, to mess with it. He's very, very clear about that. So here's where we get to some actual history. Now, these guys that are on this list, they're not in the Bible. This is where the history side of things comes in. They show up around this time of 90 A.D. after Revelation was completed to about 200 A.D., now, these are guys that may be in some of your history books and text textbooks. And here's the thing. Your textbooks might have a lot of great things to say about a lot of these guys. But keep in mind, most church historians, they don't look at history through the lens of the Bible. They don't believe that God wrote history in advance in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And so all they have to do to piece together... What happened in history is to look at these guys and be like, well, they called themselves Christians, and when you look at some of their writings and their works, it sounds Christian, so we will go ahead and line them up with Christian. And they completely forget the fact that we have an enemy who seeks to go against what God is doing in history, who seeks to counterfeit and make it look like God is moving through history. And ultimately, what they ended up doing was stopping God working through history in certain areas. And we're going to see how as we go through these names. So understand, some of these guys, they're genuinely saved, but they started deviating. Remember, we talked about the intro. It's that gradual deviation, that gradual moving away from the words of God and focusing more on the concepts, the ideals, the principles of Christianity instead of what does every word stay. And as a side note too, these guys, as they'll be known in history books and textbooks, they are known as the early apostolic church fathers. If you want to write down Matthew 23, 9, here's what Jesus says. Call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your Father which is in heaven. Now, we don't have the time to look at the context of this, but, I mean, you can read the first eight verses. You know what you'll see in the first eight verses? I'm not allowed to call my dad Father anymore? No. That's not what he's talking about. The context in the first eight verses of Matthew 23, it's all religious in nature. The religious leaders of the day, Jesus said, Hey, call no man in a religious context your Father. Words of Jesus, right there. That's You might want to write that verse down because this is going to come up in the next couple weeks to come. But first bullet point on here, we have Clement of Rome. He spoke of a division between the pastor and the common man. You know what? The, the pastor, he's above the people. He's above the common men. So that kind of should put him to lord over the common people. 
That's what he spoke on. That's what he majored in. You can look up some of his stuff that he wrote. Ignatius. He was the first one to use the word Catholic, which just meant universal. But we're getting somewhere with that down the road. He was also called a son of the church. Papias. He wrote the explanation of the Lord's discourses. You know what he was? He was a textual critic. Oversimplified what a textual critic is, it's someone who criticizes the text of the Bible. Yay, hath God said you shall not eat of the tree? You know what that looks like in not only a textual critics from this standpoint, but even in seminary schools in the United States today? Did Mark really write Mark? Should 1 John 5, 7 really be in our Bible? The book of James. Ugh, that's a little sketchy of a book. I don't think God intended for that book to be in the Bible. Happens in seminary schools all over the place right now. Someone who criticizes the text of the Bible. Again, okay to have questions about the Bible, but when you start questioning the Bible, just like Satan did, you're coming against the authority of God. Epicurus. He merged Christianity with philosophy. And man, you want to beware of that. Here's what Colossians 2.8 has to say if you want to write that down. Beware lest any man spoil you. That means to rob you through what? Philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Philosophy seeks to explain biblical concepts through man's human reasoning. Instead of just letting the Bible be the Bible and the Bible interpret itself and letting God speak for himself. We have to be careful with that. Basilides, he promoted higher learning and said that Christ was only human in appearance only. Yikes. Polycarp. I gotta say, Polycarp's awesome. This guy was arrested for his faith during pagan Rome. He was captured and imprisoned. When he was imprisoned, he asked his guards before he was going to his executioner, may I have one hour in prayer? If you were given one hour in prayer, what would it look like? This guy, by the time he was done praying, led the prison guards to saving faith in Christ because of his prayer. He was brought before the magistrate for the crime of being a Christian. And he had this to say before he went to the funeral pyre. He said, 86 years have I served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten the fire that burns for an hour and is quenched. But oh, you know not the fire of judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. His last words recorded ever before he took his last breath in this life. You're staring down a funeral pyre. You're staring down a flaming torch that's about to just consume you up. What are your last words going to be? 
This guy said, you think that's going to scare me? You're just ushering me right into the presence of my Lord and Savior. Bring what you will. Bring it. I love this guy. Here's the thing, though. At one point, he said a phrase like this. Faith is the mother of us all. And honestly, I kind of get what he meant by it. I mean, if Jesus is our Heavenly Father, and that in order to come to Him, we need to come to Him by faith, and it's faith that gets us to be born again, faith in what He did for us on the cross, in that kind of a way, it's almost as though Christ is our Heavenly Father, and us believing it works hand in hand in order for us to be born again. You know the problem with that, though? is that I just explained that to you guys using human reasoning. Using human logic. Using man's philosophy. And I didn't show you one verse in the Bible. And someone took what he said, albeit innocently, because it's not found in the Bible, down the road, this turned into a doctrine that said, salvation can only come if you are a part of a church. Because the church is what gives you salvation. That's what happened. We got to be very careful. I remember a couple years ago for VBS, I ended up, actually, I still pass it out to this day. Some of you guys who were at VBS last year, you may have remembered this document. I passed out a document of words, phrases, and sentences or statements that we make that we need to be very, very careful with. Especially when you're dealing with children and teaching the gospel to children. There are just certain words and phrases that we kind of use haphazardly in Christianity that it makes sense to us if we have a foundational understanding of the Bible, but to explain it to a kid, they might be like, so wait, I have to, how do I receive G- How do I actually receive him? Because again, kids think very, very literally. The impetus is on us as teachers to be very creative with it. But the point was, in our, in our um, curriculum that we had, we had a lot of these phrases popping up that were like, oh man, a first grader trying to understand that, we might lead them to a false conversion if we're not careful. So this happened, this hits home with us too, and we got to be careful with it. Justin Martyr, he believed in baptismal regeneration. That means that you believe that salvation comes from being baptized. And then you have this guy. Double underline, circle, highlight this man's name, and never as long as you live forget him. Origin. Adamantius Origin is his full name. He believed in the allegorical interpretation method of the Bible. Now, on our next point, and these next points are going to fly here, so don't worry about it, but pay attention because this is so utterly key. Next point, you have the Alexandrian school, and this is tied very much in with origin. Alexandrian, or the school in Alexandria, which first off, any geography majors here that, no, well, not majors in college because you're not in college, but anybody know what city or what country Alexandria is in? Egypt. There's a whole slew of verses here you can check out that God gives us a stark warning about Egypt. Because Egypt is where Israel was delivered from. Egypt in the Bible, it's a picture or a type of the world system. God very much warns them in Isaiah 31, don't you dare go down to Egypt for help. They're not going to help you. Come to me, God says. So man, when you see some from Egypt, your ears perk up. 
So this school, this theological seminary school on your back of your study sheet, it was started and led by a man named Philo. And Philo was encouraged and influenced by the works of Plato. Again, he wanted to take Christianity and merge it with philosophy. Plato. You ever look at some of the things that guy believed? Redistribution of other people's wealth. Uh, taking young kids, kidnapping them for about 20 years where they get a state-funded education. Oh, and also this guy Plato just so happened to, for some weird, strange reason, loved having young naked boys serve him alcohol at his parties that he would have. One of our greatest philosophers that we love in today's history and philosophy classes that we venerate. Plato, good man to have influence you. Started and led by Philo, who was very influenced by Plato, then led by Clement, and then by, anybody want to take a guess who? Origen. Don't forget his name. Now again, I want to remind you guys, it's the common people that hear the words of Jesus gladly and do something with what he's told them to do. Here's what a German scholar had to say about Origen and about this school, this seminary school in Alexandria, Egypt. There can be no doubt that the wonderful advance of Christianity among the cultivated during the first and second centuries was made by the remarkable men who founded and maintained the Alexandrian school of Christian thought. Pay attention to what he says next. While the common people heard gladly the simple story of the gospel, the world's scholars were attracted and won by the consummate learning and genius of Clement and Origen. In other words, poo-poo on you commoners. Oh, you're content with just that simple story of the gospel. Oh, the simple story of Jesus Christ saving your wretched soul from an eternity separated from him in hell. Oh, yeah, the common people can have that, but oh, the world's scholars, they were drawn to this wonderful school and wonderful origin. Well, let's just take a look at how wonderful origin was. Here's some of the things he believed. Again, documented in history. He's called the greatest church father by many church historians. Someone check out your history books at school and see if his name shows up. He believed God wrote the Bible. Okay, that's good. Believed Jesus was the son of God, born of a virgin. That's good. He believed Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and rose again the third day. All right, Corey, struggling to see what's wrong with him here. Uh, he believed Genesis 1 through 3 were not literal. He believed in the allegorical interpretation method, and I didn't clarify that earlier. It basically means that everything in the Bible is an allegory. It's a, it's a picture. It's a parable. That's what he believed. In other words, he is saying, don't take anything in the Bible literal. That's not what God said. He believed that Jesus was a created sub-God, but not God in human flesh. He believed the Holy Spirit was a created being. He believed in salvation by works, not grace. He believed in baptismal regeneration, that you must be baptized in order to be saved, and the sprinkling of babies. He believed that Jesus' death was a ransom paid to Satan. That God actually, oh, Satan, I owe you money. Here, let me kill my only son and pay the bribe to you. That's what he believed. 
Anybody see that or read that in the Gospels recently? Did we include that in the outreach study for the Gospel of John? Totally. Okay. Because I don't remember seeing it because it's not there. He believed in a purgatory and not in a literal hell. He believed in universal salvation for all mankind. Now note, that does not mean that all can come to salvation. That's true. Biblically speaking, everybody can come to Christ and be saved. What he means by this, and you check out his writings, is that everybody one day will be saved, regardless if they want to be saved or not. Even those who are the most staunch rejecting of God as possible, uh, nope, they have no choice. They're going to be saved. That's what he believed. He believed that Satan would one day be saved. He believed that there was no bodily resurrection, but spiritual only. He believed that there is no millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Apparently, he didn't read the rest of Revelation. And he believed in the pre-existence of the human soul. How on earth could he have gotten that from the Bible? Well, let's hear his own words on the matter. In his book, uh, book number 10, the Stromata, he said, the scriptures are of little use to those who understand them as they are written. In other words, you reading and believing your Bible and believing that God is speaking to you, it's of little use to you. There's no way that God can change your life or transform it in any way. He also said this. What did I do? He said, the laws of men appear more excellent and reasonable than the laws of God. The laws of men. Has anybody taken a look at some of the crazy laws that people are trying to pass nowadays? Trying to lower the age of consent? Trying to not make it a crime? What is it they call them? They're not called pedophiles anymore. They're called a minor attracted persons. Maps. Because God forbid you create a stigma against those who are just attracted to little kids instead of calling it a perversion of what it actually is. Trying to get laws passed to decriminalize it. Laws of men appear more reasonable and excellent than the laws of God. Understand something very, very important. I told you, mark this guy down. He is considered the greatest church father in all of Christianity when you read the history books. And here's where it gets really scary. He's called the father of textual criticism. He established another school in Caesarea. He wrote over 6,000 volumes. I don't understand how. He was persecuted and tortured during the Decian persecution. More on that next week. And he died from the bodily injuries of the torture in 254 AD. Now mark this down and circle this. His library of 6,000 volumes of his crazy beliefs, his psychotic doctrines, he left them to his favorite student, Pamphilus. Pamphilus would end up leaving his library to one of his disciples, Eusebius. You know who Eusebius is? If you have a history book from your school that has anything to do with Christianity... That book, more than likely, got it from Eusebius. Eusebius is known to be the chief historian of church history. The problem is, Eusebius is looking at history not through the lens of the Bible and how God promised to give him history in advance. 
through Revelation 2 and 3, Eusebius got all of his understanding of what the work of God really is through origin. And consequently, wrote all of his history books that went all the way up to this modern day from this perspective. Do you see why now you need the Bible to order to clearly understand what really happens in history? It's a little bit tough for tonight because it's so close to when Revelation was actually written. Oh, but oh man. When we start getting to the Dark Ages and we start seeing what God had to say about history that's a little bit more common to us, the lights will really start coming on if they haven't already for you. It's freaky. I'm telling you guys, especially with the Dark Ages, especially with the Black Plague, the Black Plague is in Revelation chapter 2. Come back. We'll see it. But before we do, the correction. God gives a correction to them. Just like maybe you might be in here and you're like, oh man, you know what? This year, it's not been the greatest year. I started off strong with summer camp and then I just slowly started drifting away from God. I stopped getting in contact with people. I stopped being a part of, of activities that were going on. And you know what? I Really, it all started with me leaving this book behind. I stopped reading the Word of God. I stopped being with God and talking with Him and He stopped hearing from me. It started there. I left Him. If that's you, praise God there's hope. Even in days where I feel like it, when I feel like, Lord, I am a wretched man and I shouldn't have, I should not be alive today. Things that I've thought, the things that I've done, the things that I've said, Lord, I've walked away from you. There's hope for us. Verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else... I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Look at verse 7. He that hath an ear. Do you have ears in here? Do you have ears? Then let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcome will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know what the correction is if that's you in here? Or if you felt like that this week, remember your first love, repent, do the first works, and you will overcome. What's the first works? You know what I wanted to do when I first got saved? I started telling people about it. I started telling my friends at school. I started telling my mom and my dad. I started telling them what happened, what Jesus Christ did for me. That's the first work. You know what I started doing? I started reading my Bible. Just do that. Get back in touch with God, and you'll be an overcomer. But a question, the last question that's on your outline here, do you truly love the words of God? Man, turn over to Psalm 119. We'll end here. Psalm 119. Give me three readers and we'll end. Carson, you're going to do verse 97. Sam, you're going to do... I'm cutting some verses out here. Do verse 140. 
Kendall, you're going to end with verse 165. All right, Carson, kick things off. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Hold on a second. There's an exclamation point there, right? Give me some gusto, music man. Music man? Aren't you in the musical? I'm not in the musical, no. All right. I play music. So. You play music. Give it to me in a... Andy, what's the highest note possible? Not doing F sharp. Give me an F sharp. <laughs> he gives an exclamation point there. Let's read it like that. Oh, how I love thy law. Oh, how love I thy law. That's, that oh, that's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. All the day. And there is an exclamation point that you can check out later. Sam. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. It's very pure. There's nothing like it. Therefore thy servant loveth it. Do you love it? Servants love it. Maybe you need to get in the work of the service. All right, last, Kendall. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend you. A couple things? Most things. No. Great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing will offend you. Nothing. Nothing will get in the way of stopping or confounding the work of God. These guys in history, let it happen. Let it not be said of us. Let's pray.